Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and Caroline is not able to join us today, but check in next week and she'll be back on the air. Our guest today, just delving right into it, is Shelley Puhak, who is a critically acclaimed poet and writer whose work has appeared in The Atlantic, Lapham's Quarterly, Teen Vogue, Virginia Quarterly Review, and elsewhere. Her essays have been included in Best American Travel Writing and selected as notables in four consecutive editions of Best American Essays, which is quite an accomplishment. She's the author of two books of poetry, most recently Guinevere in Baltimore. The book we're talking about today, however, is not poetry. This is Shelley's nonfiction debut, The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Shelley. Thank you, Monica. I'm so excited to get to talk with you today. I'm sorry, could you repeat that? You faded out for a minute. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you today. Oh, we're very happy to have you. Okay, so going from poetry to writing a nonfiction book about two medieval queens in the 500s and 600s, okay, that seems like kind of a leap. Can you tell us how that happened? Sure. So I would consider myself more of a multidisciplinary writer. So women's history has long been an interest of mine. It's something that I've explored in my poetry and my essays. In this particular case, I was working on another project about this formidable Viking queen. And I stumbled across a mention of these two rival queens in medieval source. And then when I read the account of the reigns, I was like flabbergasted as to why their story was not more widely known because it's an incredibly wild ride. And I was actually speaking with my agent about this and saying, this is ridiculous. There's these assassinations, there's these escapes, there's, you know, (laughs) witchcraft accusations. Like how do people not know about these women? Somebody should really write a book about them. And she said, yes, somebody should. And so I, you know, this is, essentially a story of like one failed project for all the writers out there leading to another project. And sometimes you don't know what is seeding the next success. That is very true. That is very true. Now the timing for this is for the story coming forth is um, kind of interesting because I've got to say these Queens seem like they just stepped out of the pages of game of Thrones. So was that in your mind at all as you were as you were um, researching? It certainly um, occurred to me when I first read some of the original source material. And in fact, there are a lot of scholars that argue that the figure of Cersei is in fact modeled on one of these queens. And I would say it would be Fredegund. Fredegund, yeah. Fredegund, yes. <laughs> So introduce us to these two dark queens. Sure. Well, it, you know, the dark queens covers these two incredibly influential women whose names most people have probably never heard of before. And they're not the easiest to pronounce, but we have mm-hmm. Brunhild and Fredegund, um, who engaged in this epic battle for control of Western Europe 1400 years ago. And this is set during the transition from the Roman Empire 
to the medieval world of these feudal nation states. And they have this really fierce rivalry, but they're also going to accomplish a lot of things that are still having an impact on our lives today. And this was a time when women technically had no power whatsoever. That's what I think makes the rise all the more um, just engaging because, you know, this essentially we have a barbarian tribe called the Franks that moves into the power vacuum in Europe. And these are really hyper masculine, like warrior culture. These are men that run around bare legged and, you know, hype like the muscular. They have throwing, axe throwing competitions. Um, so it's not really a culture you think that would be friendly, you know, super progressive and friendly to female power. So that makes it all the more interesting. It does. And it seems like even, even when these women, and not just, and these weren't the first women because there's, there's a number of their, um, kind of people right before them and even the Brunhild's mother and who seemed to be pulling the strings of the men that are the face of power. Do you think this was maybe more common than we've been led to believe? Absolutely. I think you touched on like two of my favorite points from this whole story. And one is, you know, the fact that these women and, and some of the women we know about from this period are really, if we think of them as like the proverbial tip of the iceberg. Like I initially assumed that, wow, this is a crazy story, but Brunhild and Fredegan must be exceptions to the rule. And I'm really surprised to find out that there are all of these female political leaders in the sixth century. So there are six female heads of state ruling at the same time during the so-called dark ages. So, you know, maybe there's something in the water, but it's kind of stunning <laughs> that this is a real high point for female political power, but also for every female at the top we see, as you're mentioning, we get this glimpse of all of these women just below the surface. So we have not just these other powerful queens that are advising them and positioning them, but all of these other women that are avises and business owners and healers. And we have women taking one another and men to court and suing them. We have women engaged in political plots. We have nuns participating in armed rebellions. So I was really heartened to see the degree of cooperation and support between women and these networks that they were able to build even in this, you know, time period that, you know, it's full of these additional, I might say, obstacles that most of us don't have to face. The world has just endured this, like, horrific climate change. There's a worldwide pandemic, um, you know. Might sound familiar, but you know, yeah. Of, Wait, what, you what know, time period are you talking about here? Exactly. Like it was a little, it was a little nerving writing this while I was, you know, I am kind of in lockdown and going, oh my gosh. But because of this, there's also a lot of social mobility, and there's also like a certain practicality where people are open to trying out something less conventional if it offers a chance of stability. So, you know, women are able to say, look, I, you know, I can bring the goods to the table. I can stabilize this situation. You know, I have some great ideas. And it seems that people are open to hearing that. They're looking for new solutions. And it also seems like these, some of these women, Brunhild in particular, was able to um, build on the growing power of the church and ally herself some, sometimes with um, leaders in the church to help 
consolidate her own power. And do you think perhaps the women might have been more apt to do that than than the male leaders because they maybe felt more at odds with the church, like it was competing rather than somebody that could help them? That's a great, um, very astute observation. And I think, you know, you really pointed to something crucial, which is the church is looking to make inroads against, you know, this political power and kind of jockeying for, you know, for control. And a lot of times, like we have this one pope, Pope Gregory, who's saying, okay, well, if I'm not getting cooperation with some of these kings, let me reach out to queens. Let me reach out to princesses. Let me reach out to these other noble women who have money, who have land, and who might be more open to working with me. And so they're able to form some really valuable partnerships. And in fact, one of these partnerships between Brunhild and this pope is what leads to the Christianization of Britain, which, you know, clearly something that has an impact on our world today, but she was willing to finance it. Um, whereas, you know, other leaders he was approaching were preoccupied with other things. One thing that surprised me, there actually were a lot of things that surprised me. And I hope I can remember them as we go along. But one of them was how common it seemed to be for wealthy people to send money to other wealthy people um, to uh, to kind of buy their favor. Yeah, I mean, I would say, like, no one's even pretending that these, <laughs> these are bribes. They're just, here's some money, and whoever controls, you know, the king, whether that's the king's treasury or, or whatever, that um, that is you know, that's like one path to power, but also to curry favor. I love how there's these like gift networks where people are sending one another really incredible gifts. And that's how we know some of this because the gifts have survived, whether it's these like jewel encrusted Bibles sometimes, or, you know, sometimes it's just gifts of cash, but there is a lot, uh, there are a lot of goods just exchanging, exchanging hands. And, you know, as you pointed out, it's a way to build support network. Yeah, yeah. So that surprised me. And, and they seem to kind of almost trust one another with their worldly goods sometimes. Like um, like Brunhild, I think it was Brunhild wanting this one bishop to hang on to her treasury to so because she trusted him to take care of it for her. And I think, yeah. yeah, and I think one thing we have to remember, though, that makes this a little is um, a little more believable, because, you know, in this day and age, I don't know about you, but I would not just give somebody <laughs> my ATM pin or you know access yeah. to my bank account. Right, right. But, but this is like a lot. I mean, this is heavy goods that you have to move. So, for example, there's um, one little anecdote at the beginning of the book about a queen who tries to seize power and is not successful. But but this is another sister-in-law. Um, of these two queens. But in this case, we're talking about how she needs to enable to be able to seize all of this money. She has to have men and she has to have carts and wagons and horses and a place to store it. Because at this time, you're talking about not something portable like paper money, but you're talking about needing to move tons of gold, for example. So uh, a lot of times it is a little bit easier to stay put as long as it's, you know, guarded. People can certainly grab handfuls mm. here and there, but it's kind of difficult to like, you know, maybe it might be the equivalent of breaking into Fort Knox and like, <laughs> you know, doing away with the gold bars. True, true. But on the other hand, um, it's like whoever has the goods has the goods. You know, it's 
there's no way yeah, to, once you have it, <laughs> once you have it, <laughs> you have it. I, I was surprised in one case where one of the kings let one of these queens, when her husband gets killed, lets her keep her her goods. The other thing that really surprised me was <clears throat> the I, I can't pronounce the word, so you'll have to say it for me. But there was this word for what these women received upon marriage and how oh, that worked. Gala, yes, the morning gift it would be an easier way. Okay, um, how it translates. So. You know, assuming that you do your duty and the marriage is properly consummated in the morning, you receive a gift. And, you know, for some noble women, it's, you know, jewels or, or something that might be more customary. But for these queens, in this case, it's cities, you know, entire cities. And we have an instance of Brunhild's sister receiving five whole fortified cities and the surrounding countryside and, you know, all of the taxes that's going to come from their vineyards and, and all, anything that they might produce. So this is like, you know, basically a lifetime income that you're being given. And women actually owned it and had rights to it and that could be upheld in court. Um, that surprised me for that period of time. It's really fascinating, right? I think this is a, a great case of sometimes um, we don't even know what to look for because we have these expectations of what may or may not exist. I was fascinated, um, this is kind of dovetails with your point, but the case of, for example, we have these treaties where um, we have one of the queens, you know, writing into law legal and financial protections for her niece and her daughter um, and other women where they're saying, okay, they have these goods and they can pass them on to anybody else that they wish. And you can't, you know, they can't be taken away from them in their lifetime and they can't be forced into a convent. So basically, um, even if the larger law was that women, you know, could not inherit, you know, major gifts of property or title, that they were finding ways around it to write it into law and to support one another to do so. Well, I mean, even a few hundred years ago in the United States, women couldn't own property when they were married. They it, it belonged to their husbands rather than them. So it's it's like we get this we have this idea of history kind of occurring in a line where things are always getting better, more fair, more just. But it seems like it was more up and down, up and down, up and down. <laughs> and, and we and we shouldn't you know, we also have this idea that. That because things were a certain way for thousands of years, maybe that was the way that it was ordained to be. But our, I think our, our concept of history and relationships, political relationships, relationships between men and women may be flawed. I love all of what you just said. So I just <laughs> want to like put asterisks around it and a giant, giant heart and circle it and highlight it um, because I think you're absolutely – a hundred percent. You know, we need to be really careful about the stories we tell ourselves about the past. And I think it is really helpful, you know, that I absolutely agree. We have this idea of kind of a sort of linear progress, that things are getting increasingly better. We're becoming increasingly more tolerant. And, you know, it kind of disrupts, I think, our sense of self to realize this is not necessarily the case. Um and I also, you know, was really reminded when researching writing this that history is really interactive. And 
often we look to history to confirm our own biases and beliefs and we seek out what we think exists or what we want to find. And then we end up ignoring other evidence mm. in plain sight. Of course, of course. But confirmation bias, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're talking when you're talking about the pandemic that was going on at that time. So it was was it the bubonic plague or it other may. plagues or so this is like this is one of the first like kind of worldwide appearances. They certainly have seen it before, but um of the bubonic plague. Before, you know, we all know of the Black Death. Uh, but this is called the, uh, sometimes called the Plague of Justinian, and it sweeps through um, in the 6th century, and it is um, just as devastating. Mm. And, you know, there ends up being about, you know, seven waves of this. But you, And what's fascinating, too, there's a little aside in the book, but also speaking of, like, this idea of, you know, maybe progress isn't as linear as we think, that they have this really rudimentary understanding of, quarantine and travel restrictions and how things were spread. So there's this one description by a bishop who talks about how a ship lands and then the infected people, you know, on the ship take sick, but then anybody who interacted with them takes sick. And then anybody, you know, in the people in those people's family and that they interacted with. So they talk about how it spreads as a fire from like the first, you know, from the first infected person. But they do have this understanding that there's something being passed from person to person. Um, and they had these ideas that they needed to shut down the roads and, and when they would have these big fairs. So a lot of that, too, was really fascinating for me. Other things, too, like these little uh, mentions of successful surgeries um, where, you know, there's people that just happen to be in court and they're like, oh, yeah, that's the guy who had the surgery. And they're like, what? So for <laughs> me, there were some things as I was writing this. And I would have to, you know, consult with scholars and say, is this how, how is this, you know, how is this possible? Um, but there is, you know, quite a lot of like other scholarship and other evidence, you know, supporting this. So, um, just in terms of, in some ways, you know, we have people dying of dysentery because they're not boiling water and the aqueducts have kind of crumbled and fallen apart. But then on the other side, we also have people that are performing, you know, surgery and they have this understanding of contagion and, you know, that's, probably rivals what we had in the 18th, 19th century in some, some areas. <laughs> yeah, and what some people have today. Yeah, we won't mention any names, but <laughs> 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 yeah, you're listening to Writers' Voices, and our guest today is Shelley Puhak, the author of *The Dark Queens: The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World*. Now, this book has a has a, a cover with these two queens, one um, kind of facing forward, the other one to the side, but looking at us. But we don't really know what these two women looked like, do we? We don't. So we have um, some mention that Fredegon, we think, um, was a strawberry blonde because there's, a, there's you know, some mentions of that and the way that she was depicted. And we, you know, people have made some educated guesses that potentially Brunhild, because she was a Visigoth and she comes from the area that we now know of as Spain, is more likely to... Um, you know, probably have darker hair. Um, but other than that, we don't really know. We know that they are, as far as, you know, they're both reported to be beautiful. And we know some things from Brunhild because she's described at her wedding as far as, um, you know, how beautiful she is, like what her complexion's like. And we know she's not, you know, ridiculously tall or very short. So she's about the average height for a woman of the era. What would um, that have about, been? That's about 5'4". Um, okay. 
So nothing, nothing too, um, nothing too surprising. Right. And, uh, and so we do know some general things and we know how they wanted themselves to be portrayed. But what's really fascinating too is in a lot of the, the poems of the era, oftentimes, you know, these would focus on women's beauty and really detail them. Um, and we know, like, for example, you know, men say they have a good figure. So, you know, we can, we can use some imagination and assume, okay, um, what that might, that might entail. But they, when they are commissioning or have a hand in the commissioning of poems, these all focus on how smart they are and how clever they are and how, you know, good they are to their kingdom and what a just ruler they are or, you know, how they're able to construct these infrastructure um, projects. So it's really interesting that what they're making sure gets out there has less to do with their looks and more to do with their brains. Now, you mentioned poetry, which was another thing that surprised me was how important a poet could become in this world and how important poetry was. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, and maybe this is my, like, maybe uh, piqued my interest, you know, as with a background in poetry myself. But essentially, you know, court poets are serving in this era like hype men. And, you know, if you can get a really top-notch poet, and not only are you proving you know, how educated you are and how cultured your court is, because everyone, you know, wants to be the one who's going to reconstitute the Roman Empire. So if you have a poet at your court, and that poet is able to write classical verse, and that poet was trained, you know, in Ravenna or in one of the, you know, the great cities of the former Roman Empire, that's kind of a notch on your belt. You know, that speaks to your, you know, like... What, what a great king you might be. But also then you have this poet in your employ and you can also, you know, hire him out, you know, just, you know, for, for other occasions, but who is leaving a record. Um, but he's kind of, you know, telling the story that you want to be told and disseminating it widely. So this might be kind of, you know, the version of having like your own court artist, but also your own PR person. Um, or PR team. So, you know, anytime an event happens, you get married, you uh, march in from a battle, you build something, you have this hype man who's able to come up with this verse that then you're going to kind of disseminate and make sure other people read and they get to hear your version of events. Wow. And some of these poets became quite powerful in themselves, didn't they? Yes, we've got this one, um, Fortunatus, who... He, you know, kind of, he's hoping to make his fortune in the land of the Franks, and he quickly is able to attach himself to Brunhild and her husband. He shows up on her wedding day, and then we see him um, where he's sent on all sorts of diplomatic missions. He comes back and forth. He shows up at a court case where he has to write a poem to try to flatter the king, save his friend's life. And, you know, he lives a long life, um, and he is employed by quite a lot of, you know, quite a lot of noble patrons and almost passed from a court to court, but the amount of things he sees and the amount of missions he goes on, um, you know, when they go to negotiate treaties, he comes along. So this guy had, you know, kind of a front row seat on all of the drama. And how many of his works remain, do we think? Is it a majority or a small portion? I mean, quite a lot. Obviously, there have to be. Um, there's a lot that's lost to time. So you know, scholars estimate probably we have 1% of what was produced in this time period. But in this particular case with Fortunatus, because he was so closely tied with the church, the very end of his life, um, he actually becomes a priest. And 
he lived kind of a monastic life up until then, but he's actually ordained as a priest. And so a lot of his works are preserved in, you know, by the church and other monks are recopying them and they're recopied and recopied and, and we, you know, have quite a portion of them. So although I would hesitate to, you know, put a percentage on it exactly, I think the vast majority of his work, because we can see there aren't a lot of gaps in terms of time he's dating things. And, you know, I mean, we don't know exactly how productive he is. There might be a few weeks where, we say he didn't write anything and, and maybe he did or maybe he tossed it out, but we see that he's writing quite regularly for quite a, an extended period of time. Now, at this time, did they, were they counting time the same way that we do? Were they saying this is the year 561? They counted time a little, um, a little differently. We can obviously calculate it because they were counting from what they thought was, you know, a creation. So in a lot of the books, they'll say it's been X many years since creation. And the, you know, the calendar's a little skewered, like, but, you know, we have since scholars have been able to kind of work that out and what feast days corresponded to what. Their, um, the beginning of the year actually started in, in spring. So a lot of times when they're talking about like New Year's, we're going, oh, but it's not, you know, it wouldn't be January, it would be, it would be March. It's tied to a lot more of the uh, the church holidays, for example. You know, everything they're talking about time from or how it relates to Lent. So the church calendar is kind of first and foremost, but it's pretty easy to figure out because the church kept such immaculate records that we can, with great certainty, say, oh, okay, this is April 21st, and this is happening on June 12th. And then we also have weather records that correspond to that. And so that's like really fascinating to be able to tell like when things are happening and uh, and how this is impacted, you know, by the climate or by a flood or a drought that might be going on as well. Well, when did it get set that, um, you know, the year 1 AD was this year? When When was that decided upon by the Western world? You know, I don't. I do not know. I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I'm curious about, because it makes more sense for the new year to start in spring. When did we switch it to January? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not completely sure. And I think there's the, um, you know, the Gregorian calendar. And I'm not, I, I don't know what year exactly that, that switch is made. But I know we do, we do switch a lot of, a lot of uh, things over and you say, well, you know what, maybe that system wasn't so bad. So the Gregorian calendar, was that by the same Pope Gregory that uh, Brunhild was working with? There there are so many uh, (laughs) Gregories, you know, between like royal families renaming, using the same names and, um, um, you know, as well as with the Pope. So this, is um, the Gregorian calendar, I think, is introduced sometime in the 16th century in the 15, um, 1580s. Okay. Like before then, it was, the, it was the Julian calendar. Okay, okay. So um, when you became interested in these two women, Brunhild and Fredegund, um, how did you go about researching their lives? Where did you start? Um. So my research process, essentially, when I stumbled across the story, I stumbled across the primary source. And I ended up consulting around 50 primary sources, privileging eyewitness accounts. So, for example, I talked about the court poet, you know, his accounts. And we have this um, great, (laughs) it's kind of ridiculous, uh, but History of the Franks that's written by 
um, this this bishop that is very close to to Brunhilde, and she helped you know essentially secure his position. Although he's a little embarrassed to be helped by a woman, so you know he doesn't tell anybody about that. We only find that out from his friends. But we have him writing in real time, so he's essentially writing what you know he he thinks very highly of his his writing ability, and it's it's not that spectacular. But <laughs> the great part about it is is he's coming home from certain you know, certain meals, certain dinners and saying, this is what happened and, and is able to give us, for example, reported sometimes dialogue that he has said, I just had a conversation with the king and here's what was said. Or sometimes it's recalled dialogue. We're getting it secondhand, but we're getting it the next day. So we can be relatively sure it's somewhat accurate because he's writing for publication. So if it's completely inaccurate, somebody's going to say, I didn't say that. So why we can't say it's necessarily verbatim, you know, we can, right. we can assume it's, it's pretty close. So that is, you know, that is fascinating. That is something that we don't often have. So I would go back to those original eyewitness accounts and I would look at a lot of these original sources, but then I would pull in experts. Oftentimes I would get new translations and try to see them with new eyes and also kind of boots on the ground. Like I was able before the pandemic hit to visit a lot of the places where these things took place. And, you know, sometimes that just really helps to visualize when they're talking about a, a particular scene and they're seeing somebody coming up the river um, from a particular hill and you're able to stand on that hill and go, oh yeah, okay. So you would have been able to see that person coming from quite a ways off or whatever it might be, but to fill in a little bit of those details that landscape can do. So, and you know, a lot of times with these sources, even though they had preserved things, because they were rewritten by men in the church who often were presumably celibate and had no family life, they would overlook very basic things like that could explain cause and effect. For example, um, things like periods or miscarriages, you know, or behavior that could be tied to those sorts of things. And they're going, we have no idea why she would do that. And you're able to go back and track it and say, hold on, you know, at this point, she's realizing that she's pregnant very early in a pregnancy. So it makes complete sense that she would take these protective measures. Or there are, you know, lots of other cases where just going back to the original text, but going, looking at it with, you know, fresh eyes, you were able to gain additional insight. Well, that was one of the things, you know, these women, were having babies left and right and still Constantly managing to pregnant. wield this Constantly. power <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> and losing babies left, losing children. I know. Wow. You know, what really touched me too was I think that one thing that I at least, you know, I grew up with was this assumption that somehow people in the past lost children so often that they weren't, um, they weren't as upset by it somehow. You know, I mean, I don't know if that was something that you also learned, but the sense that like, well, people would have 20 kids because only five of them would live and that they were okay with it or at least, you know, had made their peace. And one thing that I found just absolutely um, heartbreaking is in the in the records where you have um, after, you know, loss of a uh, child, you have this, this poem that's written and it talks about how the parents are going to miss snuggling this kid, but also these references to how bereft in one instance, you know, Fredegon is, who's normally, you know, this is a woman that's going to be a formidable military leader. She is all business. She does not suffer fools gladly. And we have her just absolutely, you know, clearly depressed, wandering around, you know, just sobbing. And 
it really, I think, speaks to the magnitude of the loss. Just because it happened more frequently, it doesn't mean that they were any less traumatized by it. And in fact, it's amazing to me that these women and so many others were so traumatized and still weren't frozen, were able to marshal their you know, resources and to take action and to keep their wits about them. I mean, that was just stunning to me. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Writer's Voices. Our guest today is Shelley Puhak, and she is the author of The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World. And these these women, one of them was the daughter of a king and queen, but the other started out life in much more humble circumstances. And that was another thing that surprised me about this time period was that uh, royalty and um, nobility is not fixed. You can earn your way into it, seems like, pretty easily. Would you say that was true? I mean, I don't know about the easily part, but one <laughs> certainly could. <laughs> it's like, um, pretty frequently it happened. Of, yeah, a lot of nerve and a lot of daring. And, and just as easily, um, you know, people were also disposed of. So there yeah. was a statistic about like the amount of uh, dukes who, you know, actually like were able to serve a certain tenure. And it was kind of, um, it was kind of stunningly low um, that, you know, many of them ended up not just dying in battle, but, you know, executed or, or kicked out. So there is a certain like fluidity to nobility. And also this idea that, um, you know, in some lands, you you know the the crown is inherited but in others it's elected and you know maybe your son can also be elected too if you're able to marshal enough influence and get the votes but it's not a guarantee so there's an interesting sort of checks and balances at play where someone else for example in the in the you know on the Iberian Peninsula what we now know of Spain is you know you have to be elected so you don't know if if you're if your you know offspring are going to rule or not yeah, and the the fact that uh, Fredegrin started life as a slave, and that sometimes the ruling class chose to marry commoners, and there was a reason for that. Absolutely, um, you know, in this case, you wanted as many sons as possible because it still is a warrior culture, and you want to have, you know, you have a better chance of passing on the crown, particularly for the Franks, you know, without a civil war, if you can say, look, I've got this, you know, on, upon your death, there's a strong warrior prince to take over. So kings, you know, behoove them and, and, you know, there's a high mortality rate. So the more sons, the better. Um, but then you also have this problem where with the Franks, when a king dies, every son inherits part of the kingdom. So you want to have four sons. So you, you know, you have that insurance. But then that also means then you have four sons fighting and a civil war. So what a lot of kings opted to do would be to marry lower born women. What we might think of, you know, in later times is perhaps like marrying a mistress and having a bastard. And then you can, you know, potentially pull that bastard in or find a way to legitimize them later. But, you know, they were essentially marrying serial monogamous. So they would, you know, marry one woman after the other. Obviously, there were probably some concubines or mistresses on the side. And they would try to produce as many male sons as, you know, possible. But then if they married a lower born woman and they ended up with too many sons, they could, they could kind of, you know, repudiate her or say, no, 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 no. I'm sure that, I'm sure that that's not really my son. So they had that advantage mm. of having these sort of 
bonus sons in reserve. <laughs> and sometimes it came in handy. You know, some of these bonus sons ended up ended up winning the prize. Sometimes these bonus sons ended up just, you know, um, with a cushy job in a far off land. And also when they married a, a lower class woman, she wouldn't have her own um, family trying to jockey for power and take power away from other people. Although that didn't work out so well when he married Fredegrund. She seemed to build her own power base pretty quickly. I wonder what it was about her. I mean, she must have been a woman of extraordinary charisma, but I also think she had to have been, have just a you know, first-rate mind, because we have to keep in mind she's enslaved. She starts off as a kitchen maid, but she somehow learns to read and write. She's literate, and not just Frankish, but also Latin, which is, you know, the language of the upper classes and the church. And then she's able to, um, you know, because she, when she becomes a military leader, some of the strategies she's using, it, you know, might be uncanny, but also seem to come from a lot of these Roman um, field guides, military field guides. So she's either reading them or having somebody read them to her as least somehow familiar with these strategies and, and battle tactics. Um, and so she was a quick study. And, you know, we have so many situations where she comes on the scene and you think there's no way that she can possibly pull this off. Like she's done for. And somehow she has this ability time and time again um, when she's outnumbered um, and without resources to make the most of what she does have and to end up on top. And then, you know, it really speaks to just what must have been a very magnetic personality. She was really a force of nature. Well, also, she was pretty evil. She didn't have any, <laughs> any, com didn't seem to have any compunctions about treachery and, and killing her son, her, her husband's sons from other women and, and I gotta, I have to admit, as I'm reading through this, you know, and they have this rivalry between Brunhild and Fredegund, and I'm kind of rooting for Brunhild. Are you? You're yeah. Team Brunhild. Yeah, and I feel okay. like you were too. You know, it's tough because I have, I have to say, there is also a, a, a very, there is a Team Fredegund, and they have, they have come for me, and, and you know, I'm, I'm maybe <laughs> you're favoring Brunhild a little bit. <laughs> Um, have this a little bit longer, so I think there's also that advantage of, you know, maybe there's like a little bit more source material on her. But, um, you know, I think, I think I definitely started out, um, on Team Brunhild. But, you know, Fredegon, I have to say, there's something, she's just so unapologetic <laughs> about her ambition. Yeah. And as awful as it is, at the same time, you know, to look around and to see, what were the men around her doing? And they were doing the exact same thing. They were doing it, you know, for generations before and generations after. In fact, there was, you know, there's a case right before them of this would have been the generation before these queens of a king who slaughters his nephews. Like, and these are boys of, I think they're like seven and nine as they're begging for mercy um, because he wants to get rid of the competition. And he's just pretty cold, calm, and collected, like one of the other brothers, you know, chickens out at the last moment, but he, he just, you know, he slaughters them. So although, um, you know, certainly I think our contemporary morality is like, oh, no, but I think <laughs> comparatively speaking, you know, she's, uh, she's not doing anything that hasn't been done before, let's just say by her male counterpart. Well, that's and a some good of it, point. We could argue yeah, that she has to do to stay alive because she doesn't have, you know, she doesn't have any of the wealth or the family in her corner. 
So she's going to do what it takes. Another thing that I found intriguing was how um, how much treachery, how much betrayal, how often nobles and dukes and counts would switch sides, how often these like four brothers that had inherited this Frankish kingdom and um, had split it up, um, allied one to the other, battled one to the other, one minute they're enemies, the next minute they're friends. How did anyone ever trust anybody? Right? I, <laughs> I'm with you there. I don't know, particularly when it comes to um, family. I mean, you must have slept with one eye open and your dagger under under your pillow because who could you trust? I mean, you couldn't trust your spouse. You couldn't trust your you know, offspring. You couldn't trust your brother or sister. It, it was pretty cutthroat. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. So, Shelley, would you like to read a little bit from The Dark Queen? Absolutely. So I think the selections I've picked is I was going to read a little bit from the author's note, which opens it up, and then a little bit from the first chapter. Would that work for you? Sure. Okay. So this is the author's note, Shadow Queen. Weeks before Halloween of 2016, I found myself pacing the aisles of a costume store, frantic. My nine-year-old was determined to be a killer robot bunny, and we had spent evenings hot-gluing wires and felt to a t-shirt, scouring Etsy for the correct demonic bunny ears. I had volunteered to help with the classroom party, though, and I still needed something to wear, a quick and easy costume that wouldn't look too last minute next to those of the two moms in charge. I had a witch hat at home, but I was looking for something else, something a little less generic, a little more commanding. I scanned the displays of Cleopatra headdresses, pointed princess hats, and rainbow-tinted wigs until my gaze settled on the row of horned Viking helmets with long blonde braids glued on. I didn't know then that I had just started writing this book. No raider from the North ever wore one. The horned Viking helmet has its basis, not in fact, but in the fantasies of a costume designer. Carl Emil Doppler, tasked with outfitting the cast of Richard Wagner's Der Ring des Nibelungen for the Opera Cycle 1876 production, combined Greek myth and military sensibilities. Doppler's sketches featured flowing tunics and capes, long beards and armored bodices, and lots of helmets winged ones for the female Valkyries, and horned ones for the male warriors. It wasn't long before the opera's female lead, Brunhild, regularly wore a helmet, winged, or horned. Fagner's Ring is a four-night epic, not a work for the casual fan. But even so, Brunhild quickly became opera's most recognizable figure, a busty woman in braids and a horned helmet, hefting a shield and spear. And then, predictably, she became one of our culture's most lampooned figures. The cycle features a cursed ring, a power-hungry god, and incestuous siblings, with giants, dwarves, and a dragon thrown in for good measure. But it also offers an all-too-realistic allegory for patriarchy, for the fate of females who wield political power. Brunhild is a Valkyrie tasked with carrying dead warriors off to the hero's paradise of Valhalla. When she defies her father, Wotan, the king of the gods, she is punished. He strips her of her immortality 
and casts her in the role of a sleeping beauty consigned to a rock surrounded by magic fire. She's able to be awakened only by a man's attention. Brunhild has a chance to be loved but loses that too. With her lover dead, she mounts her horse and rides straight into his funeral pyre, burning the whole place down. The poignant aria that Brunhild belts out just before immolating herself marks the end of the 15-hour opera cycle, giving rise to the expression, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. This character has become yet another way to casually ridicule women's bodies and their stories. But while millions around the world are familiar with the image of operatic Brunhild, few today recall that she shares a name with an actual Queen Brunhild, who ruled some 1400 years ago. The Valkyrie's fictional story is an amalgam of the real lives of Brunhild and her sister-in-law and rival, Queen Fredegund, grafted onto Norse legend. I didn't know these queens' names when I stood in that costume store aisle, but at some level I knew these queens. You know them too, even if your history books never got around to mentioning them. I've called them the Dark Queens, not only because the period of their rule falls neatly into the so-called Dark Ages, but also because they have survived in the shadows for more than a millennium. Then I'm going to hop ahead to the book itself, a little bit from the prologue and the first chapter. Great. This is the prologue. Western Europe, 6th century. Rome has fallen. On the empire's former frontier, the old order and a new barbarian world clash. One family emerges to conquer the divide. From the Atlantic coast to the Alps, from the North Sea to the Mediterranean, they rule. Until a terrible civil war fractures the dynasty. This war will rage for far longer than the English Wars of the Roses engulfing more territory and killing more monarchs. This war will mark the end of antiquity and the beginning of the medieval era. It begins with three weddings in quick succession and one murder. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit in time to right after the first wedding, which is that of Queen Brunhild, um, and to the reaction to that wedding. By choosing a foreign princess for his bride, Sigebert was openly declaring his dynastic ambitions, and Chilperic was furious. If the king was concerned, his court was concerned, and no one more so than the slave girl. How could she not be? She tracked the king's reaction to every event, no matter how small. It seems that she was, at this point, the king's concubine, although she could have even been his official wife. The records tell us only that the king had her, and that he was besotted. Chilperic was, admittedly, a king known for impulsive behavior, and when following his passions, he often took matters to the extreme. He dabbled in poetry, for example, crafting some decidedly mediocre verse, but his literary ambitions would soon have him trying to overhaul the alphabet. When he would later take up theology, he would start by writing a few hymns before attempting to rewrite the core beliefs of Christianity. <laughs> and so when he fell for the slave girl, he summarily had his queen, a perfectly suitable woman who had already given him three healthy heirs, hustled off to a convent. As a slave, the girl's worth was less than that of a hunting dog, less than a cow. 
and it was a life full of hazards. Open fires, undercooked and spoiled food, lice and parasites, and the groping hands of fellow slaves and overlords alike. But she had already survived much worse. She had been born at the end of the coldest decade in the past two millennia. A volcanic eruption in Iceland had plunged the world into darkness, disrupting harvests. And while the Western world was gripped by famine, another horseman of the apocalypse had galloped in. Yersinia pestis, the bubonic plague, born into Europe by rats carrying infected fleas. To this enslaved girl and the people in her childhood world, the conditions in the middle of the 6th century must have seemed like the end of days. To be born in such times could be considered a great misfortune, but it could also be a great opportunity. The air, cold as it was, crackled with possibilities for the survivors. Fortunes could be made in a month. A great family could fall, dropping dead in a matter of days. An ambitious family could move into that abandoned villa, elbowing their way into the aristocracy. Even the villa's surviving slaves had cause for hope. They could seize the opportunity to run away and melt into the crowd of refugees. They could comfort a grieving widow or widower on a neighboring estate and marry their way up. Being enslaved was not an enviable state of affairs, but it could be a temporary one. But even in a time of such unusual social mobility, the transformation that this girl had pulled off was impressive. From kitchen slave to one of the queen's serving maids, and now the king's companion. Such a rise took iron will, careful planning, and the honing of small talents, the ability to slip in and out of a room unnoticed, to intuit which cook or lackey was likely to let slip a choice bit of information. And perhaps, as some of her contemporaries mused, such a rise required dabbling in the dark arts, too. <laughs> Temperatures had since stabilized, and the initial waves of the plague receded, but it remained an age that favored the bold. She would later prove herself its equal, capable of quick and decisive action. For now, though, as the king fumed over his brother's foreign bride, the slave girl, Fredegund, was content to watch and wait. Thank you, Shelley. That was Shelley Puhak reading from The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World. Um, at least that's the subtitle on the U.S. version, and it looks I'm looking at your website, and the U.K. version says a gripping tale of power, ambition, and murderous rival in early medieval France. And the cover's quite different. Why, why is it so different, do you think? You know, it's really fascinating, um, and it, there's actually a French cover that just came out, and it's completely different as well. <laughs> so, so I'm, I, I think it's just really interesting what, um, like, sort of what the aesthetic is, and what, um, what, yeah, I guess what different markets <laughs> think of as, you know, what is what would be an appropriate cover for uh, historical nonfiction. Um, but I do know that the subtitle change for the UK has a lot to do with, um, you know, the use of the word bloody, because obviously the Brits use that to mean something quite differently than we do. Ah, uh, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So the U.S. Co cover has some you know, real realistic portraits of these two women, whereas the UK version, it's like something off of a playing card, maybe, you know, <laughs> that's the, the pictures of the women and um yeah, that's really, really interesting. You talked about how there were six queens ruling at the same time, and um, was one of them would have been Queen Sophie in the 
Is that one that you're referring to? Um, uh, in the Byzantine Empire, yes. Yeah. So I was going to say I can. Um, we have we have a female queen in Italy. Um, we have a female region in Byzantium. That's uh, as you refer to Sophie. We have Japan's first reigning empress, and we have um, a Mayan queen as well. Wow. In addition to Brunhild and Fredegund. So that's, you know, if we think that we've got all of like France and Germany, Italy, Byzantium, which, you know, is including most of the Middle East, Japan, and then the Mayan Empire, um, that's a huge chunk of the world. Has anyone written books about those other queens? You know, I I do not know. Somebody should. Yeah. <laughs> Someone should. Indeed. <laughs> So, Shelley, when you started writing this book, um, did you, you know, at what point did you know that you would be able to publish it? And how did you go about finding your publisher? Because it'd be very different, probably, than publisher for poetry books. Absolutely. So I think I didn't know I was um, doing it necessarily. It wasn't my purpose. But when I started, I thought this would be an article. So I wrote an <laughs> article for Lapham's Quarterly. And, um, you know, I thought, okay, this is like a way to work this out. And I, you know, published the article and then based on like the reaction to that or, or, and I realized there was a lot more, I then, um, was able to like use that article as part of the proposal, um, that then went out, that was then, you know, a a full like nonfiction proposal where it included the article as well as the first couple of chapters and an outline, um, and that's what my agent shopped around and pitched. And I have to tell you that, um, you know, sometimes these things happen like in publishing really quickly and sometimes things drag. And I had both experiences, you know, for a while of just um, a lot of very polite no's, you know, like this is great, but just not up my, my alley. So it wasn't something where you could necessarily take it back and, and recraft it or redo it. And then a whole lot of, you know, interest in like at, you know, at the, at the end. Um, and we were able to sell it at auction and that was great. And the publisher is Bloomsbury, Bloomsbury. which, yes. So they distribute with Macmillan. I feel like, um, in some ways you get the best of both worlds with them because you get like the attention of a, you know, boutique indie, but then you have like the distributing arm of, you know, Macmillan. So it's, it's been a really nice fit for me. Well, that's great. That's great. And how long from start? So, so you were able to get a contract before you actually wrote the whole book. Yes. And for nonfiction, that is super research intensive. That is something that I would recommend just because it's, it's a very expensive proposition, you know, just the amount of archives, the amount of travel. Oh, absolutely. Um, Some people do it the other way and they're successful, but oftentimes editors want to have a little bit of a hand in shaping it too and you know a lot of times people have wrapped up all of their research and then they find out they've got to go back out because mm. people are really interested in knowing about a you know particular path so from like from the time you got the contract till you were finished writing what how long a time period was that um just a great question like from the time i started writing the the article or to the time i started writing the but by the time you started writing the book. So I'm trying to think. I think I, this was um, 
spring of 2019 is when it was picked up and um and yes and then I remember I was able to get the travel in in 2019 before um <laughs> the pandemic you know the pandemic hit yeah, yeah. and so and then um and then you want to think that it's coming out in February of 2022 there's obviously a lot of lag time in there so I think of actual writing this is why I am a writer and not um, not someone who works with (laughs) so a couple of years anyway yeah a couple years and then you have to keep in mind like prior to that the research to put together I think the proposal or to write the article um oh yeah another year or so so I think I said like you know all told start to finish under five years wow and, you know, there's an extensive bibliography and extensive notes in the back of the book. This is obviously extremely research intensive, like you said. And um, but it's a great story. So it's been really interesting. So thank you for doing all that work. Well, thank you, Monica, not just for reading it, but for these um, these great questions. And, you know, I think you really were able to put your finger on some of the points I was hoping to convey, particularly just about the whole arc of, of history and some of our assumptions we bring and how, um, you know, Brunhild and Fredegan really kind of throw down the gauntlet to us, I think, in the 21st century of saying, like, why don't we have women running Europe and, you know, or the Western world. <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you so much for being with us today, Shelley. You know, we always close with a quote. And the quote I found for today is from Timothy Leary. And it is, women who seek to be equal with men lack ambition. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd get a kick out of that one. <laughs> I, I really do. Thank you so much, Monica. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. 